um, what we're what we're about to embark upon today as we open the book of Genesis together is way more important than you probably realize. It is way more significant than most of us are aware. Uh, we're going we're gonna to jump back in time to the earliest of time, and we're going to see the foundation of all of our lives laid out before us. And it is way, way more relevant than you realize. So we're going to get into that. But before we jump back thousands of years in history, um, let's just think back, say, 50 years, okay? Now, some of you are not old enough to think back 50 years. Uh, others of you are so old, you can't even remember 50 years ago. But, <laughs> but just think back, think back 50 years, okay? Late 1960s, we're about to put a man on the moon, Right? How much has changed in our world in 50 years? I mean, wow. Just everything has changed dramatically in that much time. Just think about technology for a second. Anybody have a smartphone? You got a smartphone? Show me. Here, can I, can I take your phone? I'm going to just uh, send a text to a few people. No. Uh, so, so most of us have one of these, right? You can't live without one, right? Got to have it with you at all times. You think it's a phone, but it's a supercomputer. This device contains more computing power than the sum total of every computer on earth 50 years ago. All right here in your cell phone. The, the computers that were used to put Apollo 11 on the moon did not have one one-thousandth the power of your iPhone. Now, that's how much technology has changed in 50 years. In 50 years, in my lifetime, we have seen the fall of communism. Now, I, that was 30 years ago, and a lot of us have forgotten that that used to be the biggest thing on all of our minds. In, in that amount of time, we have seen medical breakthroughs, the likes of which uh, you could not have dreamed about at that time. I, I had open-heart surgery last year, and the surgery that I needed to keep me alive was not available 30 years ago. So I just wouldn't be here. Um, the speed of progress is, is moving so quickly and, and, and so powerfully that probably five years from now, we will see a greater amount of change than we have seen in the 50 years I was just talking about. So we live in unprecedented times. We live in an astonishing time. But during that time of such incredible progress, we have also lost some ground. I, I am of the opinion that there is more division among people in our country, in Western culture in general, than there ever has been 
in history. There's division upon, upon just about anywhere you can draw a line. There's division on politics, there's division on race, there's division on gender, there's division on social issues, there's the economic division, uh, social justice issues. There's so much division going on that uh, a lot of us don't know what to do. Have any of you noticed, maybe it's just me and I'm getting to be that old guy that says, get off my lawn, I don't know, but... (laughs) Have any of you noticed there just seems to be a tremendous lack of common sense among people these days? I, that's, always, that's always bothered me, and, and I've really given some thought to this, and, and I think I have a little bit of understanding of why that's happening. First of all, we use the term common sense, we think we mean, you know, sense that there's plenty of, but that's not what we mean by common What we mean, actually the phrase means a sense that is held in common, right? So that to have common sense in a society, you have to have common values in a society. And our society no longer has common values, so we don't have common sense. Uh, To have common sense in a society, you have to have common priorities, and we don't have common priorities, so we don't have common sense. So people who stand way over here looking at the people across the aisle that way scratch their heads and go, what a bunch of idiots. I can't even imagine how they think that way. And then the people that are over here and looking back this way are looking at those people going, those people are insane. Don't they have a brain in their head? What a bunch of idiots. And they literally cannot understand where each other's coming from because there is no common sense, right? There is, I suppose at best, we could say there is tremendous moral confusion in our society today. That that lack of common values, a lack of common sense, lends itself to a lack of a common moral code. And because we can't, agree on what is true, we can't agree on what we believe, we can't agree on what we value, we certainly can't agree on what is right and what is wrong. And so any kind of a sense of moral right and wrong has really become just uh, an issue that is a great struggle for us. We don't really know what to do about it. The most common approach that is taken today with regard to moral right and moral wrong is to say, since we cannot agree on any of these things, let's just agree that I'll do me and you do you. And that's kind of the best that we seem to be able to do with this as a society. So we end up in a place where I believe that what's right for me is right for me and you believe that what's right for you is right for you and And when what's right for you clashes with what's right with me, whoever's the strongest wins. So there is no sense of moral righteousness or moral uprightness in a society that cannot agree on common values and common sense. And therefore, we are arguably the most selfish society in the history of the world. And, and so we have things in our culture, and I realize these are controversial issues, and I'm not here to speak on those issues today, but we have things in our culture that, that no one could have imagined would be true of us just 50 years ago. The, the countless 
millions of babies who have died as a result of legal abortion in this country was unfathomable to us 50 years ago. The the issue of euthanasia has become this great moral debate ground for us. At what point is a human life no longer valuable enough to be protected? And you go, well, a human life should be protected, right? Not everyone agrees upon that. And the laws are shifting dramatically on this issue to the point where everything is pointing to the idea that very soon we will have strongly written euthanasia laws that basically say when some expert determines that what you are contributing to society is outweighed by what you are taking from society, you are no longer allowed in society. That's a shocking point of view. You may have that point of view today. I'm not here to argue it, but it's a shocking point of view 50 years ago. It was an unfathomable idea. Today we see a tremendous lack of respect for basic human rights, and and in many cases we see some very healthy responses to that where people are, are speaking up for the first time and changes are being made. In other cases we see unhealthy responses to that where sin is being met with sin and that's just making issues worse, but but this lack of general respect for human rights permeates our society today. These are strange times we live in. So why even, with all that going on, why even bother with a book that's about the past? Why why read it? Why study? Why discuss a book so ancient that it cannot possibly have anything to teach modern, well-educated people like us? Well, if that's what you think the book of Genesis is, I can't wait for you to be a part of this series because it is going to change your perspective. And you're going to come to realize that this is not some ancient book that has nothing to do with us today, but you're going to come to realize that this is the foundation from God's word upon which all of society is meant to be built and which, if we pay attention to, it will answer the greatest questions that we face in culture today. So who's ready to dig into Genesis? You ready? Okay. We're going to be in this book for a while. I don't know if you've happened to thumb through Genesis, but it's 50 chapters. Today, we're going to cover Genesis 1-1. So, so do the math. And what you're going to realize is that when the kids in the nursery are in the senior citizen ministry, we're going to be finishing our study of Genesis. And to avoid that challenge, we're not going to be able to dig as deeply as I certainly would like to dig. And we're not going to be able to answer every question that may be existing in your mind about the creation narrative or the fall or the nature of sin or or, uh, what marriage is all about. We're not going to be able to get into every detail. We are not going to be able to go verse by verse and cover every verse in Genesis. Instead Instead of a study of Genesis, this is going to be an overview of Genesis. And we will finish before you die of old age. Um, 
And we're going to chop it up into sections. And this first section, which we're calling In the Beginning, deals with the creation narrative. It deals with the dis- this discussion of the question of where did everything come from? What are we doing here? Who is God? Who are we? And what's wrong with this world? And that's what we're going to be digging into in this first section. Then we're going to move on in the next section and we're going to look at some of the greatest figures in all of human history as they're laid out from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 50 of Genesis. We're going to see God from various points of view that maybe you've never looked at him from before. We're going to travel through thousands of years of ancient history. And all of that is going to be happening in just a few pages, but we are going to be amazed at how much it has to do with life in 21st century Southern California today. So uh, we're going to learn about the promises of God and what they mean to us today. Not not some of the basic promises that you see in, in greeting cards when people want to encourage you and you see a greeting card with a nice little promise, God causes all things to work together for good. That is a promise from God. But that's not the kind of promise we're going to be dealing with in Genesis. In Genesis, we're going to be dealing with the macro promise that, that God met with a man named Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and he said, from you, I will make a great nation, a people for my own name, and through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we're going to see how God carries out that promise, or at least the beginning of the story. And through it all, I pray we'll be transformed. I pray we will be strengthened. Um, that the foundation for successful daily living right here, right now, will be laid in our lives. So today we begin with this overview. On the one hand, Genesis is a simple, straightforward book that you can teach to kindergartners. You might have to skip a couple pages. Um, On the other hand, it is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied documents that was ever written. And I'm not just saying it's misunderstood and misapplied by people who set themselves up as enemies of God, who don't believe in the word of God, who don't want to worship the God of scripture. I'm not saying it's just them. That's a given. It's misapplied and misunderstood by Christians the world over. People who have the Holy Spirit, people who love Jesus, People who consider the Bible to be the word of God have been misunderstanding, misapplying, and misteaching the book of Genesis forever. Now, I'm probably going to get some of it wrong too. I don't know which parts or I would change it. But, but here's the thing. None of us is perfect. As we, as we come to the word of God in a place like Genesis where everything is so big and sweeping and where there are gigantic doctrinal foundations laid, we're, we're likely to have some places where we simply don't know. We simply can't understand. We're simply not sure. We have a question that we simply cannot answer for sure. And we, we do our best and we say, well, maybe it could be this and maybe it could be that. But um, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the book of Genesis that people have been messing up for a long time and it has consequences. And so one of the things we're going to try to do is get as much of it right as we possibly can and avoid those consequences. Okay, here we go. Um, This is going to feel a little bit like a college class today and less like a sermon, so bear with me. 
What does the word Genesis mean, class? It means beginnings. Good. You guys did your pre-course reading. It means beginnings. In this book of beginnings, we find the beginning of just about everything. We find the beginning of the universe. And therefore, we find the beginning of the earth. We find the beginning of mankind and all of the, all of the institutions related to mankind, like marriage and the family and civilization and government. We find the beginning of law and we find out what happens when law is ignored. We see the beginning of human sin. And as a result, we see the beginning of death. First death that ever took place recorded right there in the book of Genesis. Because the wages of sin is death. And and when you introduce sin into the picture, death automatically becomes part of the human experience. So we're going to see that in Genesis. We're going to see the beginning of work. We're going to see how God ordains work. We're going to see how God sets the example as a worker. And we're going to see how God teaches us balance with work and rest. We're going to see the beginning of redemption because once everything is fallen and broken and miserably fouled up, it has to be redeemed. And we're going to see God begin the redemption process in the book of Genesis. We're going to see the beginning of what theologians call the people of God. The people of God is essentially this unending um, chain of people who have been followers of God from Adam and Eve forward. And we're going to see this chain and we're going to see that people keep breaking off the chain and going after false gods, but that there's always a remnant of the people of God. And then we're going to see that in Abraham and his offspring, the people of God become an actual uh, geographic nation, a geopolitical entity, the nation of Israel. And we're going to see that the people of God continue through the Messiah not by blood relation to the nation of Israel, but by faith relation that Abraham is our father through faith. We're going to see the beginning of language and we're going to see the confusion of language. We're going to see the beginning of religion. You would think religion began with God, but religion didn't begin with God. Man made that stuff up on his own. And we're going to see some of that. You know what's interesting, too? In the book of Genesis, we see the beginning of music. How many of you like music? Music is an integral part of life. And if you're going to be a follower of God and obey the scripture, music is going to be a part of your life. And we're going to see God introduce the first musician to the world and, and give a mandate for music. And so much more. The list just goes on and on and on. Now, We tend to think of Genesis as a standalone book, right? If you know your Bible, you know that this is not a book. This is a collection of 66 books, right? And Genesis is the first book. And it's 50 chapters, and it stands alone. And when you finish Genesis chapter 50, you have finished Genesis, and that's the way we think of it. That is not the case. It is not a standalone book. It is section one of a five-part book written by Moses called the Torah. The Jewish people in ancient times called it the Torah, and later the Greek word Pentateuch was used, the, the five books. 
And, and essentially, it was written as one work. And Genesis is just the first part. And if you don't understand Genesis, you can't understand Exodus or Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You'll never understand that stuff. Because this is the introduction to all of that. And that five-book series stands all throughout history as the greatest manifesto of all time against paganism, which is the general purpose of Moses' writing. We're going to see that. Um, there's, uh, we're going to find that this book, Genesis, and the whole Pentateuch is written by Moses. Now, there's controversy about, did Moses write all of it? Are there some parts that were edited? Are there some parts that were didacted? What do we know about this book? And as long as there are guys with floppy hats at colleges, there will be debates about these things, okay? Um, here's what we know. We're going to do our best to not pretend to know what we don't know in Genesis. And we're going to talk about what we do know. Here's what we do know. We know that the New Testament writers, several of them, as well as Jesus himself, referred to Moses as the writer of the Pentateuch. So Moses is the writer. The question continues to, to remain, were there parts that were uh, you know, um, interjected by somebody else? Clearly, the last chapters where Moses is dead... The final chapter was not written by Moses, right? But Moses is our author. Um, and there's a problem right off the bat when we realize that Moses is the author of Genesis. Here's the problem. He wasn't there for it. This all happened before he was born. None of the 50 chapters happens during his lifetime. So we end up in this very strange situation where we have a guy writing authoritatively the word of God and we're supposed to take it as fact and believe it and he wasn't even there to see it. He was not there on the first day of creation or the second day or the third day that we're going to be reading about in the first couple of chapters. If you remember in the book of Job, after Job and his friends do all of their arguing and complaining to God, finally when Job has complained to God, God says this, where were you when the foundations of the world were laid? And you know what Job's response is? He just shuts up, Right? He could ask that question to any of us. Even Dave wasn't here when the foundation of the world was laid, right? He could ask that question to any of us and we would have nothing to say, including Moses. So how do we give all this weight to this book written by a guy who wasn't even there when it happened? Two things. The first, I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. New Testament... About two-thirds of the way through your New Testament, maybe three-quarters of the way, you find 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to read to you a familiar passage that, that maybe you've heard before, but it's very, very important for us to understand this. Again, if you're visiting with us for the first time, this is not a normal sermon. This is an introduction to a whole book, so it feels a little bit more like a class. Just bear with us. 
Chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, I do not have time to go off and teach on this verse, but isn't it interesting that we noted there is no common sense because there are no common values, because there are no common beliefs, and therefore there is no agreement upon right and wrong, right? But 2 Timothy 3 says, the scripture was given to us for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It is the scripture that is supposed to be the foundation for all of that. And when that's missing, when an understanding of the scripture is missing, when an emphasis on the scripture is missing, even in the body of Christ herself, that's when we see a a, a society spinning out of control in moral relativism. Okay? That being said, it says all scripture is inspired. Now, if you've ever heard any preacher talk about this verse, you know that the word inspired in the Greek means God breathed. It means God breathed it out. The, the scriptures come from God himself. He spoke the scriptures. That's how they exist. You say, no, no, no. The scriptures were written by men. You're right. And this is where we get into the mystery of scriptural inspiration. And I don't claim to be able to explain it quickly. I don't claim to be able to explain it easily. I'm not even sure I fully understand it, but I'm going to give you my best shot, okay? Think about it this way. These 66 books were written by dozens of different authors, correct? And yet all of them inspired by the same Holy Spirit. God breathed through the authors what he wanted to have said. The interesting thing is that as you study the scripture carefully, you'll notice, for example, that if you read like 2 Timothy right there where we were just reading, it was written by the Apostle Paul. You can, if you're used to reading the New Testament, you know Paul's letters immediately. There's a certain tone to them. There's a certain style to them. There's a certain language that he uses. And, it, and Pauline letters just look like they're written by Paul. And, and if you read, for, say, for instance, Isaiah you're going to see an author that talks completely differently. It doesn't look anything like Paul, right? And yet, with these two different authors, it's all God-breathed. It's all the Word of God. So how is that? Think of it like this. If you think of a a song that everybody knows, let's think of the, the U.S. National Anthem, okay? It's a song that most of us in the room, I think, probably know. And and let's say you go to a ball game like I did last night, and they, they trot out a person by home plate in fr- at the beginning of the game, and that person has a microphone, and with no music, just a cappella, she sang the national anthem and just slayed it. It was great. And the moment I was still entering the stadium when the national anthem began, and the moment it began, I heard it from the stadium. Immediately, I stopped and removed my hat and put it over my heart and stood quietly and respected the anthem because I knew it was what it was, right? Would I have behaved any differently if I had heard the national anthem played on the trumpet? No, it would have been exactly the same, right? It would have been exactly the same and I would have known it was a national anthem if it had been a guy playing it on the electric guitar as Jimi Hendrix so famously did once upon a time, right? And, and you go, you know, Hendrix's version of the national anthem and that beautiful um, soprano's version of the national anthem and that trumpet's version of the national anthem do not sound alike. You immediately know they're different and yet you know it's the national anthem. That's how it is with the Word of God. 
When he inspired these authors, he poured his truth through them, so to speak, so that you do get a sense of their language. You do get a sense of their culture when they write what God has inspired them to write. And yet what you get is still God-breathed. So all of that now going back to Moses. Moses wasn't there for the creation narrative, and yet he's a prophet. God speaks to him, gives him the information that he needs, and he puts it on paper. Second thing is oral tradition. The scriptures, the, um, the spiritual truths of God's people were always passed down very carefully and very diligently and very thoughtfully through oral tradition. It's still done today. In every good Jewish household where they, they take uh, the law seriously on Passover, they sit down at a Passover table and the eldest son asks a question and the father answers that question and it goes on so that they teach the history of the Passover. And everyone who grew up in a Jewish home knows the history of the Passover and can pass it down to their children because it's very carefully passed down. All of the teachings of God were initially orally passed down. And so we have the oral traditions and inspiration, and that gives us the book of Genesis. And then we have Jesus and the other New Testament authors uh, validating the book of Genesis as scripture. And we have all scripture inspired by God. So we don't know all the details, but we do know that it has been recognized by God's people throughout the ages indisputably as the word of God. And that's how we're going to treat it. So I think one of the most misunderstood issues with Genesis is its purpose. This is what gets us in trouble. People sometimes get frustrated with Genesis because it doesn't give us as many details as we would like to have, right? You, you read the creation account, wouldn't you like to know a whole lot more than what you get in those six days of creation? And it doesn't give us all of those details, and we get frustrated. So we fill in the blanks, we come up with our own ideas, we add some sort of pseudo-history or pseudo-science or our own theories to it, and we mix it all up, and that's our idea of what happened. Guys, we have to be very careful about that. It doesn't tell us everything on purpose. Here's what you have to understand. The book of Genesis was never meant to be a science book. It was never meant to be a world history book. That is not the purpose of Genesis. And when you try to squeeze it into that mold, it will leave you wanting. And when it leaves you wanting, you will make guesses and you will hold your Bible in your hand while you speak those guesses as if they're the word of God. And that will make you and the rest of the body of Christ look stupid. So be careful. We're not going to say what it doesn't say. And it doesn't say most of what we would like to know about those details. But what it does say is the word of God. And as science continues to advance, and as, uh, as for instance, uh, in the area of astronomy, as we get more and more advanced and we get stronger and stronger telescopes up into space, you know what we're finding? Everything is as it was described in Genesis chapter one and chapter two. Like it was just a few decades ago that people came to realize that the, um, that the universe is not infinite. 
but it's expanding just exactly in line with what the scripture would lead us to believe. So what, is tr- what the scripture does say is correct, but it doesn't say a lot of what we would like it to say. It is a family history. It is not a world history. So there's all kinds of stuff going on in the world with all kinds of people who are not the subject of the book of Genesis. And so we just need to not get upset about that. We just need to admit this is the story of Abraham and his family. It's the story of the people of God. It's a very narrow geographical and historical context that we're given. It's the story of God's creation of the universe and the beginning of his relationship with mankind. But it answers some massive questions. It answers questions like, who am I? The great philosophical question, what is the meaning of life? Where did I come from? What is my purpose? Is there a spiritual realm and what does that mean to me? And, and how about this? What's wrong around here? And is there any solution to what's wrong around here? That's the first 11 chapters. Then we get to chapter 12 and we meet a guy named Abram who later becomes Abraham and God calls him and by faith he follows God and God makes him a promise and says, I will make a great nation and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. And he becomes the father of the people of God, both both in terms of being the father of the nation of Israel and being the father of the faithful as the one who follow God by faith. And he receives a promise that God's going to make him a great nation. And he has two sons. One is a son conceived in sin and faithlessness. The other is a son conceived in faith as a gift from God. The second one is named Isaac. And he is given the blessing. And through Isaac, the promise continues. And then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob, although he is the younger, is the recipient of the promise and the blessing in a story that will make your soap operas look boring. <laughs> and, and then his blessing continues. His name is uh, Jacob, but is later changed to Israel. And Israel becomes the father of 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, who become the nation of Israel. The story of the people of God begins. And those people eventually become enslaved in Egypt, and that leads to Exodus or part two of Moses' narrative. So I guess I'm wrong. It, was, it didn't take that long to get through Genesis. That was pretty, <laughs> that wasn't bad at all. Um, but notice, it doesn't take us all over the world to describe stuff that is not relevant to Abraham's family. We're told very little about the, how the universe was designed and created. It is a narrow book. It's about generalities of God's creation and the early days of his relationship with humans. So stop, please. Stop arguing with people from the book of Genesis about the age of the earth. It doesn't say, okay? It doesn't say. The book of Genesis doesn't tell us how old the earth is. There are many theories out there, but none of us was there when it began. We don't know for sure. And guys, as Christians, I mean this from the depth of my being, and really I'm speaking mostly to pastors, preachers, and authors, and that's not most of you. I get that. But, but as Christians, we need a massive dose of humility when it comes to things that we don't actually know. We need to stop acting like we know. 
we don't know. We don't know. Now, you can have a theory. I, I, have, a, I have a general belief. I, I think I'm probably right. I, I think I have a general idea how old the earth might be. And I also know I might be wrong. Because I'm having to get it from somewhere other than Scripture because Scripture doesn't tell me how old the earth is. You go, no, no, if you add up the genealogies, if you think that's how you're going to figure out how old the earth is, you don't understand genealogies and how they work. It will not get you there. So we just have to realize we don't know. So Christians, stop it. Stop waving your Bibles and going, the earth is 7,000 years old or the earth is 20 billion years old. You don't know. So we got to stop arguing about that, at least with the Bible in our hands. We can discuss it, we can theorize about it, but it's not Scripture. Stop using the book of Genesis to argue about what happened to the dinosaurs. <laughs> you don't know, so stop it. It's, it's not addressed. You go, well, well, no, no, it says he created Leviathan and the great sea monsters. Yes, that's what it says. And that probably has nothing to do with dinosaurs as we know them. Let it go. <laughs> we get caught up in the minutia of what we don't know. And it keeps us from the things we need to apply that we do know. And honestly, it makes us look stupid. And it makes God's word seem irrelevant. We have to do better. So we're going to do the best we can with the book of Genesis to study what it says and not what it doesn't. Today we're not going to get very far. I'm almost done. But we are going to get to chapter 1, verse 1. So if you're, if you're wondering, go ahead, open your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, page 1. Genesis 1, 1. Um, and in fact... You know, you guys are starting to look a little sleepy. Everybody stand up. Stand up real quick. We could do this together. I'm going to just put it up on the screen, okay? You don't have to look it up. I know it's hard to find Genesis 1-1. I don't want you to have to, I don't want to strain your little brains, okay? We're going to do this together. But, but here's what I want us to do. Let's read this aloud together. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very good. Sit down. So that is Genesis 1.1. You've got some scripture memorized. Like, just, just stare at that screen. It'll be in your head. You'll have it forever. Guys, that is one of the most important verses ever penned. If you're looking for a place to start memorizing scripture, begin with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because once you understand and accept Genesis 1.1 at face value, then you can accept and understand the rest of scripture. But if you do not accept and understand Genesis 1.1, the rest of scripture will make absolutely no sense to you. Again, I can give you just a couple quick examples. In our men's Bible study, we're studying the book of Jonah, right? And anytime you bring up the book of Jonah, people go, like, yeah, really, guy lived in a fish, <laughs> right? Okay, listen. If you are okay with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, if you believe that there is this God who can make everything out of nothing by a simple act of his will and the speech of his word, then you should have no problem with God custom designing a fish that is able to hold a man for three days. Amen? Amen. 
That's really not that complicated. If, if in fact, Genesis 1.1 is true, let me, let me give you another example. New Testament, right? I don't know if you've read this, but there's this guy in the New Testament by the name of Jesus. Maybe you heard of him. Anyway, they nailed him to a cross and he died. And when he was dead, they put him in a tomb and he was in that tomb dead for three days. And on the third day, he was resurrected and still lives to this day. Now, some people would say that is scientifically impossible. Once something is dead, it cannot be alive again. Once a human being has been dead for three days, there is no resurrection, reviving him, or anything like that. Listen, if you believe Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and if that makes sense, then the idea that this same God can resurrect himself should be no problem for us. And if that's true, then it should be no problem for us to live in the hope that we too, by faith, will one day be resurrected along with him. Amen? So you're getting a sense of how important Genesis 1-1 is? See, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, then you should have no problem when you come to the end of your rope and you feel like you're running out of reason to live, and you can't understand what's going on, and you're becoming hopeless, realizing that if Genesis 1-1 is true, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then that God is a creator with a plan and with all of the power. And if the all-powerful God has a plan, you are a part of that plan. And if you are a part of that plan, you do have hope, you do have a reason, you do have a purpose, you are designed and you belong to the living God. Amen? So this is super important because until you're willing to recognize God as the sovereign, all-powerful creator of the universe and Lord of all, then you're always going to have a hard time recognizing him as Lord of your life. And you're going to have a hard time submitting to him as the one in authority. And you're going to insist on your right to determine what is right and wrong for you at a given time instead of letting the creator, the designer, the King of kings and Lord of lords, dictate that to you. So pay attention as we discuss the creation because it's the foundation of everything that follows. And I'm not going to take any more time today to get into apologetics and why we should believe it and all that. We will be hitting on that from time to time as necessary. But let's just take Genesis 1-1 and say, okay, what difference does it make? Here's the difference it makes. In the beginning, God... That denies atheism, which is a giant worldview. It denies atheism with its doctrine of no God. In the beginning, God, that denies polytheism or paganism in which there are many gods and those gods are part of nature. In the beginning, God created that denies the whole uh, philosophical school of fatalism that says everything is, is just out of anybody's control and there is no rhyme and no reason to anything and we're all just riding a wave and we'll see where it ends up. In the beginning, God created. That denies Darwinism with its whole view of, and doctrine of infinite becoming of all things. God created heaven and earth. 
That denies pantheism with its belief that God is in everything in creation. No, God is entirely separate from creation. Let me put it to you another way. There are two categories of things. This, you gotta learn this if you haven't already. There are two categories of things and only two. There is God and not God. And everything that is not God was created by God or made out of what was created by God. So, so if pantheism is true, that means God is in all that has been created. But if Genesis 1.1 is true, God created it and is therefore separate from it. God created the heaven and the earth. That denies materialism, which asserts the eternity of matter and says that matter is really all that matters. All truth about the universe, all truth about mankind, all truth about the condition of the world, it all rests on the foundational truth that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the implications for our lives are obvious. If Genesis 1-1 is true, we are in good hands. If Genesis 1-1 is true, then God really does have all authority and we really do have to submit to him. And it really is true that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If Genesis 1-1 is true, then God has a purpose and you are a spectacularly important part of that purpose purpose and you can be successful by being a part of that purpose regardless of how the world might define success for you. The beginning really matters a lot. Genesis 1-1 is powerful truth. It is life-changing truth. It is a truth that alters eternity. And that is just verse 1. Wait until you see the rest. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just want to come before you as your creation, as those who are made in your image, uniquely yours, as those who have access to you on a personal and intimate level because you created us in your image. And we want to confess that you alone are God and we are not. We want to confess that you alone are worthy of all power and dominion and authority in our lives, and we are not. And we want to ask you, God, to get us focused, to help us live in the reality of Genesis 1-1, to help us to walk in that reality, to help us to trust in you and abide in the truth that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that puts us in the exact right place that you want us. So we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name, amen.